Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center. With their experience and their profound commitment to building a better world, let us call them Global Elders. We come into a situation that's war-torn, that's shattered, and we bring hope. We have nothing to lose. We are not out to make a career. So we should be free to raise our voices and try and have an impact. I don't think anyone would ever claim that the demolition of someone's home or the confiscation of a home in which the family has lived for many generations is fair or justice or peaceful. Our independence to be able to act in places where others might be inhibited. We must rebuild trust and mutual respect in the region and further afield. This is not an easy task. It will need patience and perseverance. We can provide ideas from our own experiences where countries are facing social, economic, and political problems. President Bashir confirmed to us that he is going to withdraw the troops from Abyei. Full stop. Either the leadership doesn't have a clear picture of how deep is the, the suffering of their own people, or they don't care. We have to encourage them to get together and, and start talking, because only that will prove that there is a serious search for peaceful solution. Child marriage is violence, and violence that is happening with the consent of the society. The elders group will not only speak truth to power, but make sure that what they are bringing to that truth is the reality of those who are affected. Nelson Mandela gave us one of the mandates of the elders is to amplify the voices of the voiceless. We listen to the voices of young people. They have a greater sense of the urgency of having more equity and equality in our world. Listen to others, listen to the world, listen to the problem areas, and see where is it that we as a group can make a difference. The elders can become a fiercely independent and robust force for good. Good evening, everyone. I'm Marianne Peters, the CEO of the Carter Center, and it's my privilege to moderate tonight's event as part of the Conversations at the Carter Center series. 
I'd like to welcome you, all of you here tonight in the audience, as well as those of you watching this event online. And of course, I'd like to welcome our distinguished guests, the elders. For those of you who missed the movie or were late, the elders are a group of independent leaders brought together by Nelson Mandela in 2007, who use their collective experience and influence for peace, justice, and human rights. And I'm also honored to welcome four remarkable women working for peace who are joining several of the elders tonight on the two panels we will hear. And I will introduce each of our panelists in a moment. Tonight we will discuss important questions about how and where women can be included in and even take the lead in peace building, as well as how women can help prevent conflict in the first place. As violence and armed conflict continue to challenge local communities, and in fact the entire world, we cannot afford to rely on military solutions alone to solve the complex problems people are facing. The lived experience of women is a resource that can and should be applied to the urgent task of identifying and applying real and lasting solutions. This issue, of course, is one that is very important to President Carter, his fellow elders, and to the Carter Center. In his latest book, A Call to Action, President Carter specifically calls for implementation of UN Security Council Resolution 1325, which encourages the participation of women in peace efforts. A recent review of 31 major peace processes since 1992 showed that only 4% of the participants were women. And women made up only 2% of chief mediators, 3% of witnesses, and 9% of negotiators. Peacebuilding processes are and have been dominated by men. Um, as uh, is often observed, it is usually only the men with guns who claim a seat at the negotiating table. Now, I think we would all agree it is clearly unjust to exclude women from negotiations that affect their lives and their families' lives so profoundly. But it is also unwise. The evidence is mounting that peace agreements that include women are liable to be stickier, longer lasting than those that don't. Another report, this one several years ago by the U.S. Institute of Peace, noted that 31 of what were then 39 active conflicts actually represented recurrences of conflicts after peace agreements had been concluded. Women were not included in the peace processes of any of the 31 conflicts that reunite, reignited after a settlement had apparently been reached. Uh, this obviously is not proof of the value of having women at the table, but it's certainly highly suggestive. As a former colleague of mine, U.S. Ambassador to Mozambique, Don Steinberg, said, the exclusion of women and gender considerations from the peace process, he's talking about Mozambique, proved to be a key factor in our inability to implement the Lusaka Protocol and in Angola's return to conflict in late 1998. So this is what we will be discussing this evening in two panels, taking advantage of the experience of the elders and the expertise of our special guests. I would like to begin by introducing the first panelists. 
President Jimmy Carter needs little introduction. As the 39th President of the United States, his achievements include brokering the Camp David peace accords between Egypt and Israel and establishing U.S. diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China. He was the first American president to make human rights the centerpiece of U.S. foreign policy. In 1982, he and his wife Rosalind founded the Carter Center, which works to advance peace and health worldwide. President Carter was, of course, awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2002. President Mary Robinson was the first woman president of Ireland. She also served as the United Nations Commissioner for Human Rights and the former UN Special Envoy for the Great Lakes in Africa. And she is currently the UN Special Envoy for Climate Change. She is also chair of the Mary Robinson Foundation for Climate Justice. And we have two experts joining us on this panel. All the way from Somalia, Asha Haji Elmi is a peace activist and the founder of Save Somali Women and Children. She is a member of the Federal Parliament of Somalia. In 2008, she won the Right Livelihood Award for women's participation in peace building as one of very few women signatories to a peace agreement. Sanam Anderlini has written extensively on conflict prevention and peace building worldwide, including a new book called Women Building Peace. Besides serving on the UN's mediation standby team, she was involved in drafting and mobilizing support for Resolution 1325. And she is the co-founder of the International Civil Society Action Network, currently working in the Middle East and Asia. Before beginning the panel, I would like to acknowledge the other elders who are in the front row here, or close to the front row. Former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan, Chair of the Elders. and acclaimed human rights activist, Hina Jelani, both of whom, both of whom will join us for the second panel. Other elders who are here this evening but won't be on stage uh, include former president of Finland, Marti Atisari, former prime, there he is, former prime minister of Norway, Gru Harlem Brundtland, Ila Bhatt, founder of the Self-Employed Women's Association. Lakhdar Brahimi, former UN and Arab League Special Envoy for Syria, among many other posts. And President Fernando Enrique Cardoso, former president of Brazil. So let us begin. My first president, my first question is to you, Mr. <laughs> president, and that is, what do you think prevents women from being recognized for what they do to avoid conflict? Are there ways in which we can increase recognition among men of the value of including women in conflict prevention efforts? Well, one obvious way is to hold a panel like this and hope that a lot of people watch it, <laughs> yeah. including men. Well, I think everyone in this room would like to see an end to violence, an end to terrorism, a reduction in them. And one of the things that has uh, been most vivid in my mind in the last, uh, certainly the last three or four years, has been the basic exclusion of women from the peace process. If you ask men to get together and negotiate a peace process, they're dealing with large communities or even nations. 
if you ask women to get involved in the peace process, they're thinking about their own home, they're thinking about their children, the impact of violence on what they love personally. So it's a much deeper and, and most uh, fervent commitment. And, and quite often they are excluded, as you pointed out in your statistics, where only about one out of every 40 women are directly involved in negotiating a peace agreement. And, and this is something that we need we overlook. But I think the basic reason that women are excluded is because not only from the peacekeeping process, but also from other aspects of life. Uh, if it's a very poor family, for instance, in Africa or Asia or Latin America or wherever, uh, the parents put their boys first because they have the erroneous idea that in their old age, if they don't have Social Security, that the boys will take care of them. As a matter of fact, it's much more likely that the girls will take care of their mom and daddy than a boy. But quite uh, often they deprive their girls of a chance for education and, and a good job so they can support their family. Another thing that you have to remember is that even in rich countries like ours, women are basically excluded. Uh, for instance, uh, there's, uh, in the, let's take the Fortune 500 uh, companies, as a matter of fact. That's 500 companies. Women are CEO in only 23 of them. And I've done an analysis that shows that those women get paid less than the men who are CEOs of other, other countries. And so we know, too, that uh, in, in this country as well, that women are deprived from a right to hold political office. And it's the people in the top political offices that quite often negotiate the peace agreements. And they are quite often involved with armies and things of that kind instead of the human things. And, and this, this means that in the world, on a worldwide basis, only 23% of women, of uh, political offices are held by women. In the United States, it's not 23, it's 15%. I don't know what the election showed yesterday, but I think that in general, the elections yesterday were discouraging. I won't go into that detail. But... <laughs> So you see that quite often women are excluded from the very beginning of our lives from active participation in a leadership role so that they can use their innate ability and desire for peace uh, to promote uh, negotiation. So I think in many ways they are, they are deprived. I've been familiar with one country, for instance, we, the Carter Center has many programs there now in, in addition to Ebola, and that's Liberia. And one of the peace uh, Nobel Peace Laureates a couple of years ago was a woman who didn't have any authority, but she started just demonstrating against 14 years of war under Charles Taylor, who was a previous warlord. And she just insisted that women would join her. And eventually she forced Charles Taylor, who was a dictator and, and who was, wanted to continue war, to stop and look, look for a while. So she even followed him to Ghana where there was a peace process and she negotiated so fervently with other women joining her that they finally had to have peace. And that's, that means that you mentioned the 31 uh, peace processes that hadn't been permanent. That one so far has been permanent. And one of the results of that has been that another woman who also helped for peace is now the president of Liberia, the first woman president in Africa who, uh, that ever existed. So, so those are the kind of things that come to my mind just to answer your question as briefly as I could. Well, you don't need to be brief, Mr. President, but I'd like to turn to President Robinson to follow up on some of the things you said. President Robinson, you've worked a lot in the Great Lakes region of Africa with women's groups at the community level. As President Carter said, that's often where women have the most impact. What roles have you seen women take to prevent conflicts or alleviate those that are ongoing? Well, I will answer your question, but first of all, you must let me say what a joy it is for me, for my fellow elders in our advisory council, to be here with Jimmy Carter in the Carter Centre and, and to acknowledge 
that it is true that from the very beginning the elders prioritised uh, tackling discrimination and violence against women. It was there at the very beginning, but our biggest champion is Jimmy Carter, and he's a man, and he really <laughs> is a wonderful human rights person, as we know, but just on this issue, and the fact that he's written this book now, Call to Action, um, that uh, shows that it's one of the biggest human rights tragedies, because we're losing so much potential. And so I now answer your question. <laughs> I think the way I'll answer it is, uh, I have worked a lot. I've, I've worked with both Aisha. Um, we, we went together to Eastern Chad and talked to women who'd come over from Darfur. I worked with Sanam on a committee to support the council resolution on women at the table, 1325. But I hadn't been asked to do a peace job before I was asked to be the special envoy of the Secretary General for the Great Lakes. And there was a certain amount of pressure because my arm was twisted. I was the first woman to be in that kind of position. And I felt from the beginning I have to do it differently. And one of the things I did was make sure that all of the envoys worked together. Um, I've been in situations, I've seen situations in Darfur where envoys tripped over each other, competed with each other. So we made the E-team. They were all men, the other envoys. There were five of us. The other four were men. But that was fine. Um, we would work as the E-team. Um, Martin Cobbler, the special representative based in Kinshasa, thought that meant email team because we keep emailing each other. <laughs> I meant envoys team, you know, important. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, I realized from the beginning that I had to meet with women and listen to them. And sometimes, I remember one time in Gaza, uh, uh, sorry, in um, Goma, sorry, Goma, um, uh, we had little time because you have to get out of Goma in daylight if you're not going to stay overnight, which I also did. Um, this time I had to go to, um, on to Rwanda. And so we, we, we knew we didn't have much time. We met with civil society, including women. And then sitting there with them, I said, now men, please leave. I want to see the women separately. And, you know, so I always met with both civil society and separately with women in order to give an, an additional voice. And I realized that top-down, it was going to be very difficult to bring in a strong women's participation because the structure that I had was a structure of 13 heads of state who had to agree on how to implement a peace, security, and cooperation agreement. And the way in which this would be done would, I asked them to nominate somebody close to them whom they had confidence in that I could work with with my team and produce a plan of action that they would then adopt, which they did adopt last January. Needless to say, these 13 men nominated somebody very close to them and they were all men. So I had a technical support committee of all men. And I was able to reach out to my very good friend, Binta Diop, who at that time had been appointed by Madame Zuma, chair of the African Union Commission, as the African Union Commission's um, special envoy on women, peace and security in Africa. And I said to her, you have to be in at every meeting of the technical support committee. You have to help me to bring in the gender dimension. And we'll, we'll do this together as we've done other things. And at the same time, I wanted to make women visible. And not only visible, but that their work would be acknowledged and that their work was relevant to this peace, security and cooperation framework. And so um, we have a women's platform for women in the four key countries, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, in Rwanda, in Burundi and in um, Uganda, and uh, it supports women who, um, financially. Um, there's a grant element to it. It grants to women who are working on 1325 issues and hopefully working on keeping the heads of state honest and implementing their peace, security and cooperation framework, women working on violence against women and women affected by violence, um, women's livelihoods and access to clean energy. And I'm hoping that over time um, this will 
you know, make visible a whole network because the only thing that a women's group has to do if they are going to be given a grant is they have to link with another group of women in one of the other countries doing similar work which I don't think women find at all difficult. They have quite a lot of connections anyway. But the, the, the point I'm trying to make is I, I do think we have to work very hard over the next while to help to connect women at grassroots with the decision-making, to have every representative take the time to meet with civil society, and in particular women, and to meet separately with women, even if women are part of civil society, because you have to listen to the issues they want to raise when the, when the space is very safe. And um, I, I, I must say I was very committed to it, but I found it very difficult. It was, a, it was an eye-opener to me in a way. We can talk, but doing is really hard. And I see Sanam, who knows all of this very well, nodding. It is hard, and we need real commitment from every man and woman who is in a position of um, representing, whether it's the UN or the African Union or any other body in a peace thing, to bring in the voices of those who have to be heard and have to be at the table. Thank you very much. I, I um, heard earlier at a session this afternoon um, from ASHA about uh, a, very, a very specific way in which you responded to some of the pressures in Somalia, ASHA. And I'm speaking now about your uh, effort to um, create a sixth clan for women. Could you talk a little about that? Because I think We've, we've, we've come to the level of practical examples, and I'd love to have the audience hear yours. Thank you. Uh, the creation of the Sixth Clan was a strategy used by Somali women in one of Somali historic peace and reconciliation conference in 2000, when we women were excluded from the participation of that important national, seeking, national solution seeking process simply because we women and we don't represent the clan. It was the paramount clan elders who completely excluded the women from the participation of that conference because in patriarchal and patrilineal societies, women don't have the responsibility to protect the clan while at war nor have the right to represent the Klan at the negotiation table. So that strategy was a bloodless revolution which enabled Somali women to fully participate, first time in the Somali history, in a peace and negotiation process. And we went to the high negotiation table as equal partners in decision making. That strategy marked the end of social injustice, deep-rooted social injustice, and systematic exclusion of the women from such important national exercise. And it became the beginning of a new dawn, the beginning of a new political history for Somali women. And, the, and, and Somali women enjoy today the achievements from that conference. Thank you. What a great example of, uh, of being innovative also in the search for peace. Uh, Sanam, you have written about the culture of peace. How do we encourage communities and, of course, uh, political entities to substitute a culture of peace for one of violence? Thank you. Again, I, I wanted to just share my thanks for being here, and, and it's such an honor. 
Um, so my my own interest in this in this kind of work goes back to to my own experience of being from Iran and and understanding what it means to have rupture in your own country and wanting to have change without violence, which I think is the biggest challenge of our era. And if you look at the Middle East, I think that's really the biggest. How do we have change, transformation, without violence? And some people talk about conflict prevention, but dictators are very good at preventing conflict. They get rid of their opponents. It's really about conflict transformation and how we deal with differences. Um, and and I, you know, so, so that, that's, that's my sort of starting point. What I realized was that I was looking for... Um, who on the ground is doing this work? And one of the things that you discover is that if you look at, if you put on, a, it's almost like putting on a lens and saying, what's going on with half of the population in conflict areas, the, the, the female half? I have never come across women organizing as women, as collectively as women, um, who have fought for self-determination, for rights, and so forth, with, and, and uh, who have adopted violence as a strategy. So women's movements, never in the history of the world, yet... Yet, maybe maybe we're heading that way. Unfortunately, <laughs> have ever used violence as one as are, have used armed struggle, and yet we don't recognize that. We recognize the individual work. women, however. Individual, have. of course. Yes. Individual women join join armed groups. They they'll join jihadis. They'll join uh, all sorts of liberation movements. But when you get a group of women together mobilizing, which is really important, it's a it's a really important avenue. So how do they do it? What are they doing? How do they use their social contacts? I, I was in, I was working for the UN in Somalia, and there was a big crisis between the president and the and the, and the prime minister, and and the, we were about to spend the international community was about to spend lots of money, some big conference in Uganda, to determine what the solution was. With one phone call to Asha and a dinner that was lovely, um, I said, Asha, what's the story? And she goes, Well, you know, this he this one came to dinner, and that one I've this is what we need. And I, took, I was able to take what she was saying, put it on a one-pager, one send it back to my, to, to my UN colleagues and say, this is what's really needed. Three days later, of course, they had their big meeting, and it was a similar, it was much worse than what she, what she was suggesting, actually. The, the outcome was much worse. She had a much more strategic kind of eye on what needed, what needed to happen. But we couldn't get a meeting for Asha with the head of the UN, uh, with the envoy who was then in charge of... Uh, we couldn't get her a meeting with him to, to, for her to actually talk to him. So, so this, is, this is the challenge. I was there for the Garroway 2 process. We pushed and we said civil society, women should be there. The parties brought literally their daughters and their sisters. I mean, they, it was extraordinary. Every, every woman I talked to, I was like, how come you're, I'm the daughter of the minister of X and I'm the cousin of, but there was a group of 10 of them who were experts on constitutional issues from the parliament, from civil society, and again, we done the back. We said, "What do you want?" And we structured the discussions so that the women were there speaking in front of the men about what they wanted, how they wanted addressed. And and you know, it's you have one space where there's public discussions, and then three guys go into a room, and actually, that's really where the negotiations go on. All we did was we said, "Oh, they're they're going over there. Would you ladies like to go into that room? Open the door and let them do the work." It's not me as an outsider coming in and imposing. It's me facilitating the space and having the eye to say, how do I make sure that these voices are in those rooms? Because the men are talking about power sharing, the women are talking about responsibility sharing. And I would really like the international discourse to shift. Because when you have famine and you don't have water and you don't, you know, and, you know, the camels were so skinny, right, in Garraway. I mean, it was just extraordinary. Um, why are we talking about who's going to be president of this this this? province and who's, it's responsibility sharing for your community, for your people, for your nation. And the women are coming with that lens 
and, and I think that, that they, have, uh, they have the commitment and we at the international level have the responsibility to enable them to have a voice. That, that's been my experience. Uh, that's terrific, actually. I would like to... Well, I'd like to um, switch briefly. We've been talking about women as agents for peace, which is a very important narrative. Uh, but there is also the fact that women are and have been for millennia victims of war um, and in some, uh, some terrible ways that we're all familiar with. And one of the things that President Carter has written about is uh, the use of a violation of rape as a tactic of war, which we've seen even in modern times, as we all know. Um, Mr. President, what do you think we can do, since this is a problem that has uh, been around since, since Etruscan days, what do you think we can do about it? Well, that's one of the problems that I describe in my book. There's 23 suggestions in there, and and this one about women negotiating for peace is just one of the 23. But this is one problem, I think, that is being addressed by the international community in a forceful and legal way. The United Nations General Assembly passes resolutions, for instance, against mutilation of women's sexual organs, and it doesn't have any effect. But when the United Nations Security Council passes a resolution, particularly if it's unanimous, then it does have an effect. And Angelina Jolie and the former, prime, former foreign minister of Great Britain did form a coalition together. They went to uh, the eastern uh, Congo, Democratic Republic of Congo, and they witnessed a horrible abuse of women there by soldiers who looked upon that as kind of a privilege of war or a demonstration of their male macho prowess, was to rape a woman, sometimes even with, with metal objects and things of that kind. It was really horrible. And they even raped little girls who were less than three years old, just to show that they were dominant in that particular transient area of, uh, of, of Congo. Well, Angelina Jolie and, 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 and the foreign minister decided to do something about it. So they visited that area and many others. She had a movie about it, as you may know. And they began to introduce this resolution in the United Nations Security Council to make it a, to make it a permanent crime to permit rape against a woman in a war zone or if you were a commanding officer, to condone rape among the men who served under you. And, and there's no ability under the present uh, American uh, in international law to forgive that rape by later saying it's okay that you have done it, now we want peace. You can't forgive that crime, so it's a permanent crime. And I think this will be a major deterrent to future abuse of women and little girls in the war zones. So that's one tangible thing that's happened within the last 18 months. And it was a movie, beautiful movie actress and, and, a, and a British uh, diplomat. So they are doing something about it. That's one thing that can be done. The other thing is for people like the elder, elders to, to establish ourselves increasingly, I'd say, as champions of women's rights. And, and let, let the world see, well, the elders really believe that women ought to be equal in every aspect of life. And, if, and they are really superior to men in uh, defining what is peace and what is war. And so that's the thing that I hope we can do in the future. Thank you very much, Mr. President. I'd like to ask President Robinson and Sanam and Asha a, a question that's off the script a bit, and that is whether having more women in peacekeeping roles can help prevent some of these abuses and, um, and uh, keep the peace while the negotiations go on, Madam President. I, I don't have any doubt about that. In fact, 
when Sanam and myself and Lakhtar Brahimi, who's one of the elders here, were on a civil society committee about 1325 in the year 2010. It was coming up to the 10th anniversary, and we really said, this is not being properly implemented. You know, it's a fine resolution, but as usual, implementation is very short. And uh, we noted that there were not many women serving as special representatives of the Secretary General or in other important roles or even for the African Union or other bodies. And so we put a big emphasis. And in fairness, I must say, Secretary General Ban Ki-moon has really increased dramatically the number of women serving in very difficult areas in South Sudan, in, uh, you know, in, in, in Libya, in various places that are, that are really very difficult, in Liberia. Um, and um, uh, so... Uh, that has made a difference. Why? Because I think uh, women instinctively uh, want to know what the position is of women, want to, know, want to involve them. And, uh, you know, I mean, the story of Asha not being able to meet um, a lead UN negotiator is disgraceful. What is the lead UN negotiator supposed to be doing? He's supposed to be trying to make peace on the ground and listen to those who, who know what the situation is and who live the situation. And so I think that has changed. I think most representatives now would feel that it was important to meet with civil society and in particular, as part of that, to meet with women's groups. And, um, and, and it, it, what I'm just saying is it takes more than that. They have to also be able to channel in their views and have them represented. Um, we see that there's a slight increase in references to gender now in peace agreements. It's gone up a bit, but it's mm -hmm. still not anything like what would be needed to have really good peace agreements that would be much more likely to be sustainable. Exactly. Sanam, I see you nodding. Would you care to weigh in? Um, just a, I'm going to take the peacekeeping question, as, as specific, specifically as peacekeepers, which are the you know, military forces that are, that are sent in to keep the peace. And, and they've been, obviously we've had cases where they have actually been involved in the exploitation the of young women and, yeah. and, and so forth. Mm -hmm. Now, so what do we do with that? So I, th I think number one is if you have more women in your peacekeeping forces, the chances are that women are not going to be exploiting sexually young women and girls in the communities that they're serving in. That's, you know, mm. the, so, so there's an obvious correlation with more women in peacekeeping and less sexual exploitation on the ground. That, that's one thing. Um, and we saw this in, in a case in, in Sri Lanka, um, since, since the end of the war in Sri Lanka, there, was, there were many, many inter internally displaced people, mainly women and children. And a Sri Lankan colleague of mine said, you know, we have the army there, and there is this problem of sexual exploitation of women by the military personnel. And it's a lot to do with poverty, right? These are very, very poor people. You know, in, in, in Africa, I mean, we've had cases, and I think one bottle of water and an 11-year-old mm -hmm. girl has, 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 mm -hmm. has had relations with, with a peacekeeper. So there's, there's, there's an issue of economic aspect. But in Sri Lanka, this, this problem came up. And the women's movement was actually saying, we want demilitarization. You know, the military should pull out. And we as peace activists were saying, but that's not going to happen. It's been 30 years. They want to go back. You know, they've just reoccupied the territory. So what's the answer? And the answer and the solution we came up with was why not tell the Sri Lankan army that they should deploy female peacekeepers and police officers in the region. And my colleague who's Sri Lankan actually took this on and again she knows her context. She's you know she's very very strategic and understands her and she became the advocate for this and over the last few years this is actually what's been happening. They they've deployed female police officers, female peacekeepers. And she's been doing workshops with the police in that region saying, what are the security problems you're faced with? And the police are saying gender-based violence. So violence against women is our primary concern. So they're coming up with strategies of how to work with communities. And in doing that, they're actually building up trust that never existed. 
um, with the community. So, so there's a sort of, there's a multiplier effect when you have women in these processes and in, the, in these places. And I think that the UN should say, give priority to countries that will put more women in yeah. their peacekeeping off. Mm. It's, it's a nice job for a lot of, mm. of uh, military, exactly. military units. Mm. If yes. you can, the more women you have, the more you, 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 know, you get yeah. climb up the line of, yeah. of countries that become troop contributing countries. Thank you very much. We've now come to the point where I'm going to take a couple of questions that were tweeted to us earlier. Uh, if that's uh, if that's all right, in order to uh, to expand the participation, uh, and um, one question for you, President Carter, is how can we ensure that women involved in peace prevention, in conflict prevention, and peace building, are not there as tokens, uh, are not um, uh, you know it's it's the old if there's one there will never be two. Okay. Uh, um, Idea. That's an easy question for me to answer. Good. <laughs> Just imagine you have five or ten people sitting around a table negotiating, and you've got these three women up there on the, uh, <laughs> around the table with them, or my wife, you know, or my mother. You know, there's no way to make a token out of a, out of a deep feeling and, 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 and sincere and eloquent woman. Uh, I've tried that a few times in my own uh, life, and I've always failed. So I, I think if you just let two out of five or two out of ten people negotiating an agreement, no matter what it is, even though it's not a peace agreement, just negotiating, they will bring into that environment a, a, a fresh and, and innovative spirit that's very convincing even to doubting men. So I don't think there's any chance of having a strong woman be a token, even if she's one out of ten. Thank you very much. <laughs> that question came from Pamela from Atlanta, and I'm sure that Pamela is quite satisfied <laughs> with the response. Um, and this one is for Asha, uh, and this comes from uh, Hendrika Okondo, uh, who asks, how can we ensure that women like the Honorable Asha Elmi are adequately resourced to continue their work, both uh, at the policy and grassroots levels. And by resources, Asha, I think our questioner means, obviously, not just money, but other forms of support uh, that, that you may need that may not be clear to the rest of us. Well, thank you. That's a very vital question, because it's not only me and my organization but the overwhelming majority of women organizations and women movements in Africa, especially in Somalia, have not been receiving an adequate resource for their important work. You know, doing such things, do, uh, building peace and promoting human rights, it's not an easy task to do. By the way, it is not a risk-free task. We are taking a huge, huge personal risk. We are sacrificing for our lives, and we don't get the protection we deserve and the resources we need, the tools we need in order to smoothly uh, you know, execute our own day-to-day -day activities. It is an epidemic in all African women uh, and, all, and global women organizations the majority of the women organizations are underfunded. That I can say it clearly and loudly. 
Thank you very much. And, and I hope our audience here and our remote audience will take that to heart. Um, I'd like to throw out a question. This comes from Angelica uh, to whoever on the panel would like to take it. And that is, uh, and it's really a two-part question, so if you want to take half of it, feel free to do that. What are your views on how education and social media, so two things, can be used to uh, aid peace building? Salam, you're nodding. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, two things. I think that um, what, if we take the story of Syria right now and, and mm -hmm. the whole issue of Western uh, uh, young people going and fighting there, you, know, you have to think, what's the messaging that they're getting? Well, they're getting the messaging that we're not really dealing with Assad. They're getting very, very sophisticated social media messaging from ISIS and so forth. Um, and the one thing that nobody, I, I, would, I would even do a vote here and say, how many of you have heard the voices of Syrian women peace activists on the ground? Raise your hands if you have. How many have heard what Syrian women peace activists are saying? That's one. That, 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 that's the answer, right? We work, I work with a network of, of, of act, peace activists. There are 4,000 of them working across Syria. I work with another network that has... They are all saying things like, we don't want weapons. We don't want bombing. We need money for education because education, because our kids are being displaced and ISIS is paying $400 a month to take our boys. And we're getting very radical extremist um, curricula coming from the, the, the Arab state, you know, from the peninsula area um, that is teaching intolerance and things that we didn't have. So education is absolutely critical. And, and the messaging of these women saying what the alternatives are is absolutely critical. And, and it's completely absent from the debate. I've had Syrian activists in, in Washington talking to policymakers. Policymakers said, these are the first Syrians we've talked to who don't want weapons. Most of the people we work with don't want weapons, and yet they don't have access to the right places at the right times. That paradigm has to change. So media is a critical space um, uh, for that thing. Would anyone else like to contribute on this? Yeah, I, I mean, what, what is interesting is the sophistication of ISIS and these groups at getting out messaging and the attraction for young people in Europe and elsewhere, and even in this country. Um, mm -hmm. And the, you know, um, I think I have to ask Sanam, if I may. Um, you know, women are good on social media. I mean, how, how is it that your you know network of four thousand Syrian women haven't been able to get their voice out? I, th I think it goes back to the resource question. How much can everybody do at any given yeah. time? You know, it's, it mm -hmm. really is yeah. about how much time in a day do you have? And also there are certain risks. Mm -hmm. But, but I, th I think it's partly this question yeah. of how do we have spokespeople? How do we make sure journalists mm -hmm. talk to them? This is part of the work that uh, through my organization mm -hmm. ICANN we're now focusing a mm -hmm. lot more on. Even our own voices. You know, my, my board has been telling us, you have to get out into the media. <laughs> It takes time <laughs> to write an op-ed. Yeah. Who has that time, yeah. right? It, it's, it's really about resources yeah. and, and priorities. But, but the more we think about mm. it, the more it's becoming an issue. Because actually, the policymakers respond yeah. to, to the media yeah. as at well. Le at least you give me some comfort. I think I did the right thing in the way we structured the women's platform mm -hmm. for the Great Lakes region. Because we didn't try to second guess what women were doing. They know yeah. what's best. 
There are some of them working on 1325 issues and they're doing very good work and we hope they'll hold the heads of state accountable for the peace, security and cooperation. They need resources and they can get small grants and they only have to link with women in other countries. Similarly, with dealing with violence against women and women um, affected by violence, livelihoods. Um, earlier, we had a discussion between us at an earlier roundtable here in the Carter Centre about the importance of the economic empowerment of women, the importance of livelihoods, the work that my fellow elder Ila Bat is doing in India with the self-employed women's um, organisation where they, um, they have almost two million um, uh, women in the informal sector, part of a trade union, but they all have um, social security, pensions, um, you know, th that, that sense of being able to do what they can do that's all the more important in a conflict area. Yeah. It's all the more important, and we have to really uh, work very hard at that. Thank you very much. I'd like to wind up this first panel by asking this very distinguished and experienced group of peacemakers and peace builders who have been at this a long time, no one longer than President Carter, with all uh, due respect, sir. Um, <laughs> uh, does it, uh, does, it become ever, does it ever become dispiriting to work in this space? I mean, uh, uh, you have mediated conflicts, Mr. President. Uh, President Robinson, you as well. We have uh, Asha from Somalia who has been battling to save her country and her communities, and of course, Sanam as well. So uh, I'd really like to ask all of you, uh, how do you keep going in pursuit of peace, Mr. President? Well, one of the basic principles on which the Carter Center was founded is that we don't object to taking a chance with a possible failure. Uh, because if it's a worthwhile goal in life, then you can take a chance if you failed and you try something different to achieve your same goal. And I would say that the number one unmet goal to be achieved in the world today is peace. We have just a, an almost overwhelming commitment, not only to violence on the battlefield, but also violence through bombs and missiles and, and drones that uh, kill innocent people. And we also have violence in the homes uh, in the United States. Just in, uh, since I left uh, the White House, we've had six times as more people, more people put in prison as existed uh, when I left the White House. And eight times as many black women in prison now as there were in 1980. So this is the kind of violence that, that we adopt. And I would say to do away with violence is, is a, a very difficult uh, goal to reach. But every time you make a small achievement, it's a step in the right direction. Because if you save one person or just a few people at a time, it makes it all worthwhile. Thank you, Mr. President. President Robinson. No, I will say I, I don't get um, depressed or feel down um, in working in difficult circumstances, partly because of the people you meet, people like Asha and Salam. I mean, just the extraordinary commitment and c courage. Uh, it is not easy, and this is a very courageous work. And I, I'd like to sort of share um, a saying of um, our first chair of the elders, and now honorary elder, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. I was on a panel with him about two years ago, and he was, it was, there was young people in the audience, and when Archbishop Tutu sees young people, he just gets an extra edge, and he was full of great talk, and his arms were waving and everything, and the woman journalist moderating said almost aggressively to him, Archbishop Tutu, why are you such an optimist? And he looked at her and he sort of shook his head and said, oh no, dearie, I'm not an optimist. I'm a prisoner of hope. And I think it's a very good expression because it shows, you know, you're not wildly optimistic, but you're a prisoner of hope because hope gives energy. Hope gives 
um, space to breathe. Hope creates ways of doing things. You know? And I think that's what we always have to do. We always have to be hopeful um, that things will change and make things change. Yeah. Sana. Thank you, President Robinson. I, I was uh, quite young when I was involved in mobilizing for 1325, and, and it came from women from the conflict areas. We consulted widely, uh, wild, you know, and we, it was drafted in consultation with women living in war zones, and it got adopted by the Security Council. By the way, through the presidency of Namibia and the support of Bangladesh and Jamaica, it was not the U.S. and the U.K. and the P5 who were supportive of this agenda. It was actually others. So... And over the years, I've often thought, you know, okay, you know, so what? You know, we got this. What's the point? But every time a new conflict arises, I find women who, are, who stand up and start working for peace, and they're doing it nonviolently, and their lives are threatened. And, and that resolution matters because it came from women before them, and it's their voice. So, so that's one thing that, that certainly gives me hope. And then the other part of it is, what's the alternative? What's the alternative to working for peace? Um, you know, the United Nations has actually been quite effective in making the idea of interstate war bad. You know, we, America still bombs a few countries every once in a while. That's a bad thing. But most other countries are not really bombing directly. Or, it, in, you know, Russia is doing some dodgy things. That's, but, but the idea of interstate wars has become bad. We need to now put the focus on within countries. What do we, what do we need to give young people as an alternative? What kind of, you know, why not have mandatory social service where young people can actually work together on environment and health and education and get to know each other across social, economic, and ethnic and gender divisions so that when their politicians or whoever it is is telling them, you've got to go and hate the other guy, they can say, actually, I know the other guy and, 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 and kind of create social cohesion. We've done so little for peace that I think there's tremendous capacity. If we were at 90% and it was only 10%, I'd be a bit depressed. But I think we're kind of at a D minus, C plus place. We've got some room for growth if we wanted to put real resources into peacemaking. And until then, I, you know, I have to be hopeful because the alternative is abominable to think about. And I think we can all agree that everyone on this dais uh, has displayed great courage uh, in the cause of peace. And there are different kinds of courage. Um, political courage and the courage of investing your life in, uh, in a hope. But there's also physical courage. So I want to end with Asha, who is on the ground in a, and has been on the ground in a dangerous place. What keeps you doing this, Asha? Well, I, I find my inspirations in different ways and different forms. And one of the most remarkable um, source that I always find my inspirations is believing that promoting peace and reconciliation is a godly endeavor and that God will reward me what I'm doing. And that is why I don't care whether I got killed or I, or I survived because I believe that uh, the endeavor that I'm risking with is a godly endeavor. Another remarkable source of inspiration is the unconditional and genuine love and respect that I got from the younger generation, both men and women, who sees me as their role model and their voice for peace and the voice for the silent majority, mainly women and their children. Another important source of inspiration is the international recognition and solidarity that I got personally, meaning 
uh, the awards. And I take that as a very strong message, silent message, which tells me we are with you, you are not alone, you are on the right track, pursue the endeavors of peace, we are with you, and you will get rewarded by either God or by the people, for love, uh, peace-loving people. So that is where I found my inner satisfaction, despite the fact that walking peace and protecting women's rights in my own circumstance is not an easy endeavor. It involves a huge personal risk, but I'm ready to take that personal risk because I believe the reward that is waiting for me. Please join me in thanking this incredible first panel. Thank you. Thank you. Will the panel two panelists please join me on stage? A warm welcome, please. <laughs> Sir? Now it's my great pleasure to introduce our second group of panelists. Um, this, uh, this panel will focus on how we can get women included uh, at peace negotiations. Uh, again, um, I hesitate to introduce Kofi Annan. He is well known to all of you. As you all know, he was the United Nations Secretary General from 1997 until 2006. During his tenure, the UN launched the Millennium Development Goals and placed good governance and respect for human rights and the rule of law at the top of the international agenda. Um, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2001. Besides being the chair of the elders, as you've already heard, he also chairs the Africa Progress Panel, as well as the Kofi Annan Foundation. Hina Jelani, on the other end of the panel, is a lawyer and human rights defender, as well as being an advocate of the Supreme Court of Pakistan. 
She was the first special representative of the UN Secretary General on Human Rights Defenders from 2000 to 2008. A strong advocate for women's rights, she was awarded the Millennium Peace Prize for Women in 2011 and has been a longtime friend and partner of the Carter Center, as well as being a member of the Elders. The two experts joining this panel are Jessica Newworth, who is the founder of Equality Now and Donor Direct Action, and Manal Omar. Jessica helped draft the Akayesu judgment of the Rwanda Tribunal and the Charles Taylor judgment for the Special Court of Sierra Leone. In 2010, she served as UN High Commissioner for for the Human Rights Special Advisor on Sexual Violence. And Manal Omar is Acting Vice President for the Center for Middle East and Africa at the U.S. Institute of Peace. She's worked for Oxfam, Women for Women International, and was an advisor to the Libya stabilization team in Benghazi. She is also ranked as one of the top 500 most influential Muslims in the world. So please join me in welcoming this august group. The first question for this panel will go to Secretary General Kofi Annan. Mr. Secretary General, from your vantage point, you saw the beginnings of a number of tragic conflicts that are still ongoing in one form or other, from Rwanda into the Congo, from Afghanistan and to Iraq in, uh, and Iraq into Pakistan and Syria. Can you help us understand uh, wh- how you see um, possible solutions to these conflicts? and whether a focused effort to involve women in peace building might contribute to resolving these challenges? <laughs> That's a big question. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> no, I, I think uh, the, the nature of conflicts, uh, the nature has changed. Um, wars used to be interstate between two countries, and in a way it was easier for mediators and negotiators to deal with it because you had organized governments, organized armies. When you come up with ceasefire and there is will, they can honor the ceasefire and make sure that the order goes down from the general to the foot soldier. Today we have more civil wars, intrastate conflicts, and we have uh, militias, different groups, who are not as structured as one would like, and often you don't even know who controls and who influences them. And even when you get to those who are giving them the weapons and the money, either they deny it or they give you lip service, but no support, no real support, which makes it extremely difficult to influence uh, the the parties. Uh, We've seen the situation in many African countries, in Central Africa, in Congo, uh, and recently we've seen it in, in, the, in the Middle East. Uh, beginning with Syria, you had the government on one side and many militia on the other side, controlled and influenced by governments in the region and outside their country. And sometimes you have proxy wars uh, between two governments on a third territory, on somebody else's territory. In fact, I used to say, and I'm sure Lakta Ibrahimi, who also 
held, uh, did some work in Syria where they agreed that some of the fighting going on in Syria and some of the things going on in Syria had nothing to do with Syrians. It's proxy wars by countries that are trying to get some influence there. And of course, now what we all feared has happened. It's spread beyond Syria. The whole region is uh, destabilized. Everybody is worried about Daesh and how you control them. Where does the media, how does the mediator get a handle on this? Where do you start? Whom do you talk to? On one side, if it's a government and a host of militia, you know where to get the government. But how do you get to all this militia? So we need to find out how we, what approach and strategies we can use to get to these uh, militia. But what is important is if we are going to make a difference, the international community has to work together in a meaningful way. Not, not with words, or just with uh, or resolutions in the Security Council, as important as they are. But they need to come together and make a common cause and say, look, if we don't handle this, we are all going to pay a price. If, for example, in the Middle Eastern situation, Syria and all this, the governments had come together early. By governments, I mean the permanent members of the Security Council and key countries in the region, like Iran, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Egypt, Qatar, working together as a group, making sure no one is given support to the militia and, or to the government, and they all work together, they could have made a difference. But it's not always easy to get that. So we are dealing with a, a situation where uh, not only uh, have the armies fragmented, but the governments tend to follow their own uh, dreams. I mean, at any one stage, when you're pushing for conflict, one group or groups of countries believe our side is winning. And so the moment has to be ripe when they all realize it's a stalemate, you're not going to go anywhere until then uh, they may wake up and work effectively uh, with, with, with the mediator. But I think what has complicated our lives is, is, not, is the civil wars and the multiplicity of parties. We talk of, uh, we, we earlier, Discussions indicated there was no space for the peaceful opposition, that you don't hear their voices. And they, in fact, have quite a lot of the money going into these conflict areas goes to the armed uh, uh, people. I think I, I will leave it here and, and come back later. Thank you very much. Um, Advocate Jelani, as one of Pakistan's leading human rights activists, do you see a link between the protection of human rights more broadly uh, and the uh, uh, conflict resolution, particularly uh, a role for women? Uh, and if so, how do we do that in societies? And I am thinking of Afghanistan, where it may be difficult to bring women to the table. Um, let me first of all thank you for having us here. Uh, it's such a pleasure to be back in Carter Center, and uh, this is not the first uh, such discussion that uh, I'm having um, with the courtesy of the Carter Center. Um, I think I would like to take up something that uh, 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 Mr. Anand said uh, earlier with respect to the change of actors in, in conflict. 
Now, with more internal conflicts coming up based on largely identity issues rather than territorial issues, it has become even more difficult for women to play a role. And the obstructions and the challenges that they had because of cultural uh, um, uh, restraints on them, added to that is this whole question of anything that they take up which are which are which is crucial to peace but not necessarily a, a addition to the voice of their men on the cause of the conflict or their own objectives and goals they are seen as those that have betrayed us and i think women are generally silenced by saying this is not important right now we have a larger battle to fight and I have seen that again and again, especially in my part of the world, uh, where identity-based conflicts are, are very common. Uh, when you say, is there a direct link between human rights and conflict resolution uh, with the participation and f with a role for women? Absolutely there is. And let me give you one example. When I was in Darfur, uh, uh, I was not there as a peacekeeper. We were doing, uh, we, I was a part of the commission of inquiry. And when we went to see the women IDPs and the women human rights defenders who were working with these IDPs, I learned so much about what women want is really very much what international humanitarian law and international human rights law protects. For instance, uh, they, had, they asked again and again very passionately, all women human rights defenders said, look, if you want to protect these women, you have to ask the AU to put uh, troops near forests, near places where these women have to go to pick up uh, um, 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 firewood or to, to relieve themselves. <laughs> And I suddenly realized that much of what they want to be protected is a part of international humanitarian law. The, the means of survival, when, when combatants start destroying those places, international humanitarian law is very clear on that. So absolutely, you're right. This is not, so, not just indirectly linked. It is so directly linked to the upholding of international law in, in times of conflict. Secondly, I think it is also wrong to say that we have to bring women into, uh, um, uh, to the table and into peace talks, etc. And peace building in particular. Women are building peace. Look, the minute conflict starts, women's lives don't stop. And their everyday function doesn't stop. And in the post-conflict era, it is these functions that bring normality, normalcy to the community. And that in itself is a first step to building peace. I think I have heard so many times uh, from people that women complicate peace processes. <laughs> yes, they complicate them. But why do they complicate them? so that you can make sure that dimensions of peace with which women are familiar do not get left out. Because if they get left out, you will never get sustainable peace. And you will never... 
So you have to deal with them. They may be difficult questions. But also I think it's important to understand that it's not just at the peace table that the uh, whole issue or, or notion of women, peace and security begins or ends. Even in our countries, normally, there are problems that women have with national security policies. We all have national security bodies that make those policies. How many of us have ever either been invited, and I'm sorry to say and regret that even women have not demanded that these national security bodies must hear us. We must have a voice in construction of national security because this not only concerns our own countries, but it also shows what we understand as egalitarian relationships uh, uh, in an international context. And this is what we are trying to build in South Asia, frankly. We want a South Asian civil society that can pressure their governments on a human rights uh, uh, policy that doesn't hurt others across their border. So if there is somebody, some government that is acting in a manner in which human rights are violated directly of another population, it should be their people who should be the first ones to get up and say that responsibility for the protection and promotion of human rights doesn't end with your border. Thank you very much. Manal, I'd like to turn to you to talk a little bit about something you talked about during this afternoon's session, also here at the Carter Center, uh, which we uh, can refer to as Where Are the Women? Would you talk a little bit about that issue and the complexity that we discussed earlier? Sure. I think that... Um there is a reality, you know, in terms of on the ground, in the grassroots, like you said, in peace building. Um, I had the real honor to be in several of the squares during the Arab Spring or Arab Awakening. So I was in Yemen in Change Square. Um, I spent some time in Tahrir Square. I was in Benghazi in front of the courthouse very early on when Gaddafi was still in power. So there was no question. Women were there. Women are active. Um, the question about where are women is when it comes to the decision-making table, when it comes to political representation, and the absence compared to what women really are in terms of being on the ground is quite stark. And you know, I think that the numbers really speak loud. Um, despite the fact that women were really the catalyst for the change that we began to see, um, the reality was that they were left behind. And um, when we look at today, we look at Libya, out of 200 representatives, only 33 are women. That's less than 17%. In Egypt, only 10 out of 508. Keeping in mind that Egypt used to be the pioneer of women's rights, so to see how far it's come back. Um, in Yemen, only one out of 301. Despite the fact that the national dialogue was composed of more than 30% women and was considered a very successful process. And in Tunisia, where it's really our source of pride and you have some success, it's still only 27% with 58 of um, 217 representatives. So you can really see a lack of the proper representation despite all the sacrifices and despite all the effort that they put in. I think that the challenge in asking where are the women is a recognition recognizing the fact that the absence of women is indicator of larger problems. 
that when women are absent, you can almost guarantee that you are not having democratic principles in the culture that's uh, being emerged. Um, you will probably have a rise of extremism. Um, you'll have overall marginalization of other minority groups. And so really, women are the canaries in the mine. And I think we've seen that over and over within conflict, that by simply dismissing it of lack of women's participation and, and shrugging our shoulders and saying that's too bad, we actually miss the opportunity to potentially prevent conflict escalating further. And I think that's one of the things I would like to see from the international community is that we start asking that question when we enter a room. And it's not just the peace building table. It's not just the decision making. In every meeting, we should ask that question, where are the women? And uh, I remember asking that question in Libya and the women told me, we're so busy getting the work done. So in addition to asking where are the women, how do we support by creating space and avenues of participation so that they can take the time to come to the decision-making table? Because at the end of the day, they will always choose action over words. So I really think that is the role of the international community to create that safe space for women to be there. Thank you very much. Jessica, I'm going to ask you a general question, and that is, based on your experience, uh, what do you see as the main barriers to women's ability to play a role in conflict resolution? Well, I think, uh, as everyone has said, everywhere there's conflict. There are women who are ready, willing, and able to make a very significant contribution to peace. And so the, the challenge is to give them an opportunity to make that contribution. And that was really the goal of Security Council Resolution 1325. And, and as you said, we've been watching this for 14 years and six or seven more resolutions following on it saying pretty much the same thing. So we have a lot of rhetorical commitment to the importance of women and the role that they can play, um, which is at least as beneficial for the peace process as it is for women. But what we're finding, and I think Aisha on the previous panel mentioned that she couldn't get access to an envoy. What we're finding is that across the women's movement around the world, the experiences are much more, you know, they have much more in common than not. And, and these are very, very common problems that everybody is facing, trying to be able to contribute what I think Hina and others have described as a, a much more holistic vision of peace that may be more complicated but ultimately is going to be more just and sustainable. Uh, it's a vision that, that, as I said, rhetorically we've all endorsed, and yet the, the, the obstacles are practical. I think it's ultimately just a question of political will, first and foremost, because if we want to make this happen as an international community, it's not that hard. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, I'd like to uh, ask uh, Secretary General Anan, um, how do you think women can get their views heard? And I'm thinking particularly of the discussion we had earlier about your role in Kenya. Uh, and you told us a little bit about that, but that was in camera. So if you could share that, I think the audience would appreciate it. As, as some of you would know, I was involved with the Kenyan negotiations in January 2008 when a, almost a war broke out after the elections with both sides claiming uh, victory. 
and the president was sworn in at midnight and war broke out, killing 1,300 people and uprooting 650,000. So when I got involved, I, I engaged the prime minister, the president and the opposition leader, encouraged them to come to the table and really send a message out to their people that they are going to resolve their issues peacefully. Of course, the first difficult thing was to get them to come to the government house and shake hands publicly with cameras there for their people to know they are talking, uh, to bring down the, the temperature. And then I asked them to give me a team of four each to negotiate uh, the peace process. I didn't want to take them on directly because the anger was so uh, high that I probably would have ended up uh, s separating them from killing each other. <laughs> anyway, the, um, the, the both parties came, gave me a team of four, which eventually became five. There were two women on the team of ten, and they were amongst the best members uh, of the negotiating team. But then we also reached out to work with civil society, with the women's group who were involved in the sense that we told the Kenyan people and civil society, we are not going to hide anything from you and every deal we make, we will release immediately. So whenever we agreed a document, everybody signed and we made it public and gave it to the government and the opposition and encouraged the society to get in. Kenyan civil society is very active. Most of the leaders were women, articulate, well-organized, came to meetings, very well-prepared, and honestly, some of the things we achieved, we couldn't have done without them. Uh, and when, uh, because we had a uh, four-item agenda, the first one was to stop the violence and the killing. The second was to get humanitarian assistance to those who've been displaced and the needy. The third was to resolve the political conflict between the two groups and, and bring the political tension down. And the fourth agenda item, which is the most important, was to deal with the root causes, including a new constitution and all that. And throughout this process, the civil society and particularly the women's group played a very important uh, role. So we did not only accept the two who were formally nominated and were very effective, but we reached out, tried to be creative and bring in the other women working with, civil, uh, with the media owners as well. Uh, and I must say, so when you get into these situations, you need to be creative and find ways of bringing the women uh, in. And in fact, as part of the new constitution, we even had a, a, a paragraph that said, no gender should hold more than two-thirds of seats in parliament. And uh, I was teasing the men. I said, you know, the way it was formulated, it was as if the men were afraid that the women would hold two-thirds <laughs> of the seats instead of saying one-third should be reserved for women. The rule was changed, but of course, the men have dragged their feet in implementing it. That has to be done cautiously, and uh, otherwise it will be disruptive. The women fought hard, but it's been implemented partially. But as long as it's in the Constitution, there is hope that uh, it, it, it would uh, happen. 
But what was also interesting is the women realizing that they are able to make their contribution were not pushing very hard because they had access. They had access to me and my team, and they were very much uh, involved. And so the participation need not always be sort of the formal channel. I say, Hina has said that you are at the table, you are, the women are ready to make their contribution. And I think in time, they will be at the table. They have the numbers, they're getting lots of experience. And uh, I think the men are getting worried. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to return to uh, Advocate Jelani um, and ask if you have any thoughts on, um, constitu- uh, on the legal framework that can best uh, give voice to women, particularly uh, in internal conflicts. And um, although Secretary General Anand had success in Kenya in including women in the constitutional process, that's not always the case. As a, as a lawyer, what, what do you think about that? Uh, I think there would be different um, frameworks if we are talking at the international level, then there will have to be the, these, uh, the Security Council resolution. I, I like uh, uh, 2122 better because it spells out uh, more of why things do not happen and what needs to be done to bring pe- women more visibility in the peace processes. Um, but if you're talking at the local levels, I think it's extremely important that the world realizes the importance of uh, local governance and women's participation in local governance. Because in local conflicts uh, that are taking place, it is the local government that can play a big role. And where women have been in the local government, and you asked me about Afghanistan, those women at the local level did make a difference. And not only made a difference, they were at great risk. And you, uh, probably many of you here know, how many of those women lost their lives? Oh, yes. Only because they were women and were trying to play a public role. And this was not acceptable. So uh, my, my sense about Afghanistan is that women are there now. They, they, they not only need to increase their visibility, they have to maintain it. That's the problem. That's the challenge for the new government in Afghanistan, for the civil society in Afghanistan, for the civil society in the region to help them, and for the international public opinion to make sure that pressure is there so that they can sustain this visibility. And we keep our eye on them. Absolutely. We keep an eye on them. Not only keep an eye on them, we assure them that we are with them. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I'd like to ask um, all of the panelists, but starting perhaps with Manal, to share with the audience a favorite story or anecdote or insight about the contributions women have made to peace. Um, A favorite one is is very difficult. Um, I think that one of the uh, most powerful stories, and and I think it's hard when I think of Iraq to think of a positive one um, because it's so painful to see how women have gone behind. But in the early days, I think that what you saw from Iraq, you know, and I'm talking about 2003, 2004, very early days, you saw so much hope and potential and the first groups to really reach out beyond all different ethnic groups, beyond the sectarian, was the women. 
And um, I, I think that that is one of the things that I really felt very optimistic about. And I would zero in on the experience of Resolution 137, which was introduced at the time by Prime Minister Jaffari, which introduced a very monolithic interpretation of Islamic law for the personal status law. And what you saw is women who had never been active politically, women who really hadn't had the opportunity to convene and organize, in, you know, within minutes have the instinct of saying that's not our law that repeals everything that we know and it has nothing to do or represent either our culture or our religion. And they organized within three or four months to the point where they were able to repeal that law. Now, I remember that story with a very bittersweet memory because right after that, within a year, that gain that they had was repealed and a new form of that law reemerged. But watching the women who had no political experience, no training, keeping in mind all these men that had so much resources and training um, overcome by uniting still reminds me of the power that women can um, do when they are able to really come together. And, and I remember that as with such limited resources and such limited access when they stay together, they really are able to create change. Um, I would only add, and not to end on a bad note, but I would only add that I wasn't the only one to pay attention. I really believe that extremist organizations have recognized the power of women, yes, and they've saying. recognized how women can build bridges. So not only have they targeted them through violence, they've also targeted them by separating them. And you see this, I think, most powerfully with ISIS. They've learned that the only group that can really counter their narrative and their structure are women. And so it's not just you know through brutality that they target women. It's through strategy to make sure that they don't have the opportunity to do what they did, which was when they repealed Resolution 137. Thank you. <laughs> Jessica, do you have a favorite uh, story? Not that uh, Manal's was all that uh, hopeful. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah I, I don't think I can help on that front because there's, there's no favorite story that I have. Just really... Uh, for me, interesting stories of the potential that's there, but mostly ultimately kind of unrealized, and that's the frustrating part. Um, in 2001, <clears throat> with a number of international organizations, uh, we organized an Afghan Women's Summit just a few months after 9-11, brought 40 Afghan women together. I think maybe Hina was there. It was, uh, it was an incredible meeting. You see the creativity and energy of women with all of the vision for the future of their country. And afterwards, we brought a delegation to the European Parliament, to the Congress and the State Department, and, and ultimately to the UN Security Council, where there was a very active dialogue. And the women were adamant. One thing they all agreed on, because they didn't agree on everything, was uh, that disarmament had to be a top priority. And it made so much sense. And it didn't happen. And it was painful, because over the years, I think we've seen the consequences. And I keep wondering, you know, what if that dialogue had continued? What if those women had been taken just a little bit more seriously and brought into a process to try to help figure out, even though this is difficult, how can we pursue it? And, and that just didn't happen. Um, more recently, I've been uh, working with the Syrian Women's Forum for Peace, uh, which is a, a group in Damascus, and they've come to the UN a number of times, had a similar experience of knocking on doors that, that didn't open. But, but one door we opened was the New York Times editorial board. And that was a good door, uh, because our goal is to try to increase their visibility and give them a voice so that people can hear what they have to say, even if some people don't want to listen. So 
so I was in the room, and, and it was funny for me because the, the, everyone else in the room knew so much more about Syria than I did. I could barely follow the conversation, but I could see how impressed those New York Times people following Syria so closely were with the with the breadth and knowledge and vision and understanding that these women had, and their political savvy. You know, I think people tend to be dismissive, and then they listened. And, and I had the same experience with these women elsewhere, um, and ultimately saw pieces of what they said in New York Times editorials, which was very rewarding. So, um, so I, I just want to end, since I can't give you a story of hope with a, <laughs> with a plug for, for direct linkage. And, and one of the things we did with donor direct action was try to set up ways that anyone anywhere could directly connect with women on the front lines and support their work because I think that we need to really make their voices more visible. And as everyone said previously, Aisha highlighted, they need much more support than they have. And with a little bit of support, I think they could do a lot more. Thank you very much. Hina, do you have anything to add? Do you have a favorite, a story that you think illustrates the point you would like to make? I have so many stories, I can't even begin to remember which one uh, would be more appropriate for this uh, particular topic. But I can say one thing, that I think not only are women aware that they have a role, uh, in many ways they are willing to play it. Um, in some cases, they do try and play that role, despite all the constraints that they have. And these are the most courageous women. You were talking to Aisha about courage, and I really admire what she says. I wish that people like me were as courageous as she is. I am afraid all the time. Uh, the only thing is that I don't think I have an option. <laughs> and I, I do believe that there should never be a time when I think that there, should, there is an option. And about success, um, I, I think people like the people who, who really, uh, you know, um, are in this job of promoting human rights, uh, they invest in struggles. Success is only a bonus. Mm -hmm. Although we want that success, but you know, it's like I was at the at the um, uh, border on our side of Kashmir recently when Pakistan and Indian troops were having these border skirmishes, and when I talked to the villagers, especially the women, none of them were speaking about Pakistan's right to the territory uh, in Kashmir or what Kashmir should be Pakistan's or India's. These women were saying, "My cattle are dying." I'm losing my livelihood. And so, so this, these are the times when I feel a little dismo, you know, dismayed that how can we make a difference? And I think for that, that reason very much, I like this platform of the elders where you can bring those voices to platforms where big issues of peace and security are being discussed. This is peace and security for people their livelihoods, their more, even more than their lives, it's their livelihoods. Thank you. Uh, before we uh, end this evening's conversation, I'd like to ask um, Secretary General Anand to uh, speak briefly, sir. No, th thank you very much. And President Carter and Ambassador Peters, we are very, very happy uh, to be here. Uh, to be here around your 90th birthday, Jimmy, so that we can cut a, share a bit of your cake. 
He's had many cakes. Yes. <laughs> and uh, to hear the discussions this afternoon and this evening is it, a real uh, inspiration. I mean, he now started by saying, I'm not courageous, I'm always afraid. Being courageous doesn't mean you have to be fearless. But I think here yeah, we need to have that determination, that stubbornness, that optimism, that we can make a difference, we can make the world better, and that we are taking on jobs which are very difficult, whether it's ending a war, promoting human rights, or protecting women in conflict situation. These are jobs which are never done. You have to wake up every morning ready to fight it again. But I think what uh, keeps us going is the fact that um, we are satisfied if you help one person. And you don't have to stop a whole war. In fact, you see somebody being mistreated, instead of just walking by, just saying, enough, stop. This is not acceptable. You have no idea the courage it gives a victim to fight back and to stand up. And so um, we, we, even those who are not directly involved have to understand the importance of third parties intervening, interfering, and saying this. So I, I urge all of you to be peacemakers or interfering third parties. And I think the Carter Center is a good example of that. And thank you all very much. <clears throat> this has been a podcast from the Carter Center, online at cartercenter.org.